from the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi there, is the mayor in? Marissa Lang with The Washington Post. Hey, it's Dossie. I wanted to pick your brain on the truck. Hi, my name is Jenna Johnson. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Friday, February 8th. Today, Jeff Bezos versus the National Enquirer. A breakout hip-hop classic and the job that prepared Nancy Pelosi for the speakership. On Thursday night, Jeff Bezos, the world's wealthiest man, published an unusual post on the website Medium. It was titled, No Thank You, Mr. Pecker. He was calling out businessman David Pecker, CEO of the company American Media, which owns the National Enquirer. And Bezos claimed, in part, that the National Enquirer was trying to extort and blackmail him. According to Bezos, the Enquirer claimed to have intimate photos and texts he'd sent to a woman that he was seeing, and that Pecker would publish those photos unless Bezos abandoned his claims that the Enquirer's expose about his extramarital affair was politically motivated. Full disclosure, Bezos is the owner of the Washington Post. And this feud, it first began with that Enquirer story that published last month. It was an unusual National Enquirer story. It was 12 pages jumping off the cover. It had the text of text messages between Jeff Bezos and his girlfriend. It had photographs of them in public places, at restaurants, on tarmacs. The story was essentially pitched as Amazon founder and Washington Post owner caught in secret love nest kind of thing. Mark Fisher has been reporting on the spat between Bezos and American media for a while. In retrospect, Jeff Bezos and his investigators believe that that Inquirer investigation was not just a simple gossip story, but in fact was a politically motivated hit job that stems from a long-running battle of words between President Trump and Jeff Bezos. Now, all of this has seemed like prime tabloid fodder. It is a shocking, a deeply personal post just published online with uh, embarrassing pictures, uh, which are detailed here in great detail. He puts it all out there. You saw the news last night and you thought, what? Oh, my God. Have these guys not learned anything? Initially, it was a classic gossip story, but then it turned out to have, by various accounts, a lot of other strange ramifications. So it brings in not only the richest man in the world, but potentially the president of the United States or certainly people around him. It brings in the foremost purveyor of gossip journalism in the country, and it brings in some strands of the Russia investigation in the 2016 campaign. So it's a complex and utterly bizarre set of circumstances. So this all started with a National Enquirer story that was published about a month ago and was the result of a months-long investigation. What exactly was that story about? The National Enquirer spent, by their account, four months trailing Jeff Bezos and his mistress, Lauren Sanchez, as they met in surprisingly public ways and places and carried on their affair. And the Enquirer, in classic tabloid style, was running to airports and following them to restaurants and taking surreptitious photos of them and all the things that tabloids do. Why do they think that it's a political hit job? 
Their investigator, who is kind of the private eye to the stars, a guy named Gavin DeBecker, has been running security for Jeff Bezos for a couple of decades. And he was put on the case and he rapidly concluded that the intimate texts between Bezos and his mistress were not hacked, but rather had been essentially given or handed over to someone. And the someone that they have centered on in their investigation is a guy named Michael Sanchez. He's the brother of Lauren Sanchez, the girlfriend. And the belief in the Bezos camp is that Sanchez working somehow in cahoots with people who are very close to President Trump or were during the campaign, people like Roger Stone and Carter Page, came up with the idea of having the National Enquirer investigate Bezos for political reasons. So what has that investigation found so far? So the Bezos investigation concludes there was no hacking. Michael Sanchez is the subject they're mainly looking at. And the expose on the affair was intended to hit back on behalf of Trump or people in Trump world against Bezos, who they see as an enemy because of his ownership of the Washington Post. The president has repeatedly conflated Bezos, Amazon, and the Washington Post, three separate entities, but obviously all part of Bezos world. I have respect for Jeff Bezos, but he bought the Washington Post to have political influence. And I got to tell you, we have a different country than we used to have. This is owned as a toy by Jeff Bezos, who controls Amazon. Amazon is getting away with murder tax-wise. He's using the Washington Post for power. He owns Amazon. He wants political influence. He bought this paper for practically nothing. And believe me, if I become president, oh, do they have problems. They're going to have such problems. should point out that there is an alternative theory to this promulgated by Michael Sanchez, the mistress's brother. He believes that this is all Bezos' security guy, Gavin DeBecker, trying to cover for his own failure to keep that affair private. And DeBecker says, that was never my job. I never was in charge of that. Bezos and the girlfriend went wandering around the world on their own, and I wasn't involved. And so how, how is the National Enquirer responding to all of this? There was an extensive back and forth between the Bezos camp, his investigator, and people at the National Enquirer from the very beginning about the Enquirer's plans to write their expose in the first place. So both sides were in deep discussion. There were actual negotiations. And if you recall, Bezos tried to preempt the Enquirer story by putting out his own tweet saying that he was going to be divorcing his wife. And that was his way to try to diffuse the original Enquirer story. That was in early January. In the ensuing weeks in January, there were other news organizations that were hot on the heels of this story about possible political motives for the Inquirer's investigation. And when the Daily Beast website began asking questions about some of these political connections, connections between Michael Sanchez and people around the president, that's when the National Enquirer started heavily lobbying against such stories. They sent threatening letters. They had their lawyers call. They, not just the Daily Beast, but other news organizations. When we here at The Post began reporting a story about this, similarly, they tried to wave us off from Bezos's explanation of things. Hmm. Now, why would they be upset about the idea that they were politically motivated? Well, because their two top executives 
David Pecker and Dylan Howard had come to a non-prosecution agreement with federal prosecutors. Federal prosecutors looking into the 2016 campaign had, if you recall, the whole catch and kill scandal in which the Inquirer would buy stories from women who accused President Trump of having had sexual relationships with them, and they would then kill those stories, never run them. And the National Enquirer's executives had come to an agreement where they said they would cooperate with the feds and give over any information and not take part in any criminal activities for three years. And there's a very famous example of that catch and kill tactic, right? Right. So former Playboy playmate Karen McDougal, who alleges that she had a sexual relationship with President Trump back before he was president, she sold her story to the National Enquirer, which never printed it on behalf of President Trump. And it has come out in some of the investigative documents that indeed the National Enquirer had a habit, a policy of helping out Donald Trump. They had a symbiotic relationship where he gave them various stories and they took care of him so that when some of the women who accused him of misdeeds came along, they would buy the story and keep it quiet. According to the Jeff Bezos theory of what's happened in his case, a similar kind of dynamic was at work where Pecker was looking for a way to help the president. The president was also helpful to Pecker. They have this ongoing relationship despite the fact that Pecker has been talking to federal prosecutors. And this all comes out in what is really a remarkable blog post that Jeff Bezos posts online, like in the first person, that essentially accuses the National Enquirer of trying to extort him. Right. So our story appears on Tuesday and right around the same time, there's this back channel that we didn't know about between Bezos and the executives at the National Enquirer, including one of their lawyers. So they were essentially pulling out all the stops, trying to kind of put the genie back in the bottle and stop the story from getting out there in many different places. And so they apparently eventually concluded that rather than fighting this piecemeal as each news organization tried to do the story, they would go to the source himself, Bezos, and try to get him to back away from his own storyline about where their investigation came from. That connection between the Bezos case and the previous relationships between the Inquirer and President Trump is something that the Bezos camp is pushing hard as their theory of this case. There are alternative theories and we have circumstantial evidence that backs up the Bezos case in some fashion, but there is no smoking gun. There is no documentary evidence of any Trump role or even role of the people around the president. So what's going to happen now? Well, any number of things can happen. Certainly, Jeff Bezos has now opened himself to a rather miserable couple of years in which he could conceivably be a key prosecution witness were there to be a case against either the Inquirer or people around Trump who were theoretically involved with this. And so he has not seen the end of this in any way. For the Inquirer, it means a world of trouble for their executives who had made a deal with federal prosecutors. And now certainly those prosecutors are examining what these executives have done and seeing if there were any violations of that deal. On Friday, Pecker's company said it would launch its own investigation into the allegations from Bezos. In a statement, the company wrote... American media believes fervently that it acted lawfully in the reporting of the story of Mr. Bezos. 
Further, at the time of the recent allegations made by Mr. Bezos, it was in good faith negotiations to resolve all matters with him. For the past two years, Jeff Edgers has been reporting on a song. Just a single song. Walk This Way. Not the original version that Aerosmith did in the 1970s, but the version that Run DMC recorded with Aerosmith's leaders Steven Tyler and Joe Perry in 1986. And that song did a lot of big things. It was a huge hit, it revived Aerosmith's career, and it created a whole new audience for rap. This song was the first rap song that was played on mainstream radio. That might sound insane today, but until 1986, hip-hop was basically on like college radio stations and really not a central part of what was popular culture. And it became the first rap song to crack the top five of the Billboard Hot 100. Many people say that the idea for the song began in 1986 with a white kid from New York, now legendary music producer Rick Rubin. Well, Rick Rubin at that time was just out of NYU and really wasn't famous yet. I had produced LL's stuff and Beastie Boy stuff at that time. And Rubin thought that a crossover between Aerosmith and Run DMC could be a way to make rap more commercially successful and, frankly, more palatable for white people it would illustrate to people that rap music is actual music because people who didn't listen to rap music thought it was not music at that time. So it was more of a, a learning tool for people to understand what hip-hop was. That was the purpose of it. There are two reasons why, at that time, hip-hop wasn't part of our culture. One is a cynical view, which is that it was music that was created by African-American kids in neighborhoods that were very, very different from all the folks who were programming radio stations, who tended to be either white men or powerful, older African-Americans who, in many ways, didn't appreciate the culture they were seeing coming out of those hip-hop clubs. So if you had black artists on MTV at the time, they would be people like Billy Ocean or Aretha Franklin um, or Michael Jackson. You wouldn't have hip-hop because it was considered just a completely different format. It wasn't rock. Aerosmith at that point was really struggling. They're considered washed up by that point. In the 1970s, there was no American rock band bigger than Aerosmith. For Aerosmith, Walk This Way was a key song. It was on Toys in the Attic, their third record, which came out in 1975. By the late 70s, they're starting to struggle, and then Joe Perry quits the band in 1979, and that's when things really fall apart. It's not until they come together again in 1984 that people think they can maybe try to make a comeback. But even then, after they put out you know, their first comeback record that came out in 1985, it's considered a big failure. By 1986, when they're asked to do this song, they needed it way more than Run DMC did. So Run DMC was made up of uh, Joey Simmons and Daryl McDaniels. They were the MCs. And then you had Jam Master Jay on the turntables. 
Run DMC was already the first rap superstars, no question. I think what Rick Rubin wanted to do at this point, he wanted to turn them into something else. He wanted to turn them into basically pop superstars. Instead of selling one or two million records, he wanted them to sell four, five, six million records. Well, Run DMC, they really didn't even know who Aerosmith was. They knew that sample, the Walk This Way sample, uh, which is the drum beat. Boom, ba boom, boom. Back in the day, we used to rock off to just the, the beginning part. Jay used to scratch it. Isk, at, uh-uh, uh, at. Isk, at, uh-uh, uh, at. That part, that was like a staple of hip-hop. Sometimes they would use the guitar. They'd let that riff come in, you know? No, just... That was okay, but they never let anyone hear Steven Tyler's voice. If you, as a DJ, let it get to Steven Tyler's voice, you were a bad DJ. So Rick Rubin said to them, hey, guys, we're going to do this song by Aerosmith, and I want you to hear this. And so he gave them the record. He gave them a notepad and a pen. He said, okay, listen to this. Go home and write down the lyrics. And let's see where this goes. So they went home and they listened to it, and they thought, yeah, this is the worst thing we've ever heard. They actually called it hillbilly bull. Can we use that word? No, we can't. <laughs> well, you can beep it. Can you beep it? Is this the first time that you've met each other? Yes. yes. Yeah. Run DMC first, went into that studio not really knowing who Aerosmith was, and Aerosmith went into the studio not really knowing who Run DMC was, and these guys were professional musicians. Imagine the general public. I mean, there were a whole swaths of America, suburbia basically, white kids, who had no idea what hip-hop was. <laughs> The day they recorded was unlike any other recording session we had. So there was a photographer there, MTV News was there. And they had a camera crew there filming it. Is this still MTV? Hey, George, man, you got Unbelievable, because you're going to get some stuff here. So this was already a little bit weird. Did you get a chat soundtrack? I need to get some Okay. Hello. You had Tyler and Perry coming in and sort of standing around and recording and Run and Daryl sitting on a couch eating like burgers. What goes on? So it wasn't like they came in the studio and everybody like immediately got to work. But you're watching these guys working and you see two sides really that don't understand what either of them do. So you see Jam Master Jay showing Tyler and Perry how he used Walk This Way and basically he's showing them how Run DMC would use Walk This Way in the club, like when they were freestyling live. The beat ends, he stops the record and goes on to the other record, and Tyler and Perry are just kind of watching. To which you see they look kind of stone-faced, which is because they're confused a little bit. Why do they keep playing the intro? What's the purpose of this? And I don't know if they actually, it's clicked in that, hey, these guys don't care anything about our lyrics or guitar solos or whatever. They just care about the drum beat. And then on the other hand, you've got Perry playing the Walk This Way lick over and over and over. And Tyler, again, he's a showman. He's trying to participate. He's like rapping over it. On the other side, you get Run and D and they are not taking it seriously. They're at the microphones, they're holding their little scribbled copies of the lyrics, and they're goofing off. We make a record with the Aerosmith, y'all, and it is death, y'all, and it is death, 
y'all. I said that Aerosmith is the best, y'all. And then you've got Rick Rubin, who's trying to keep everything together. And he told me that it was very, very uncomfortable because what he knew is what nobody else knew. He knew that while everybody was pretending that they knew each other and liked each other, he knew that both sides had no knowledge of each other. Were you fans of Aerosmith? Excuse me. Were you fans of Aerosmith? Yeah, we loved it. Big fans. This is our favorite group. You know. (laughs) Joe and Steven, were you you fans of DMC before? Yeah, we've heard them. I like their style because there's um, a lot of electric guitar in it, you know. And finally, yeah, and it, uh, it caught my ear. So when I found out about this, I was like, you know, real excited. You can tell. <laughs> <laughs> the whole thing was very awkward. It was just awkward. Let's just think about how important the song is in the end. They leave the studio not knowing if it's going to come out, but. Everything that came after it, it's, it's, it's incredible when you think of it. I mean, Yo! MTV Raps was not on the air until after Walk This Way. In Living Color. Arsenio. Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. Basically, what I'm talking about is suddenly hip-hop was part of everything. So this really was the gateway song to what became our culture. Jeff Edgers is the national arts reporter for The Washington Post. His new book is out this week, and it's called Walk This Way, Run DMC, Aerosmith, and the Song That Changed American Music Forever. And now, one more thing. Speaker Nancy Pelosi became an instant meme at the State of the Union when she directed an exaggerated clap at President Trump. We must reject... The politics of revenge, resistance, and retribution, and embrace the boundless potential of cooperation, compromise, and the common good. Arms raised high, hands thrust way forward, head tilted just so. Even Pelosi's daughter tweeted about it. Quote, Oh yes, that clap took me back to the teen years. She knows, and she knows that you know. And frankly, she's disappointed that you thought this would work. But here's a clap. Hashtag, you tried it. Whenever you see similarities drawn between a politician's political tactics and their parenting style, it's usually being said about a woman. And that's not fair. Powerful men are rarely asked to opine about child-rearing. But in this case... Pelosi embraces the idea that parenthood forged her as a politician. And she talked about that to Post reporter Ellen McCarthy, who writes about parenting. She had five children in six years. Boom, 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 boom. And if you can even imagine what that's like, it's crazy, right? And so she 
had to sort of rise to the occasion and turn on this next level of efficiency and time management and organization that really shaped who she was. I became so energized and efficient in the use of time and willing to delegate to the children (laughs) responsibilities. I remember somebody saying to me once, when I went to Congress, I knew she was going to go someplace when she had those four-year-old children folding their laundry out of the dryer and taking it to their room. (laughs) You know, the way that her career developed, she was a stay-at-home mom more or less for 15 full years. It wasn't like she was parenting and developing these skills with an eye on leadership. It's just that it was happening simultaneously. And so that when she did get into a position of leadership, she knew what it was like to hold together disparate parties, to find consensus among people who aren't inclined to come to consensus. And, of course, she learned to do all of it on very little sleep. And one of the things that she told me is that she actually gets less sleep now than she did when she had five children under six, which I thought was pretty amazing and terrifying. Pelosi herself has pointed to her parenting experience as something that helps her deal with opponents, including President Trump. You know, Nancy's in a situation where it's not easy for her to talk right now, and I understand that. Mr. President, please don't characterize the strength that I bring to this meeting as the leader of the House Democrats who just won a big victory. When other people in the room with him get flustered or match his level of anger or frustration, she seems to be able to keep her cool. And she said that she would tell her own children, ignore it, ignore that behavior, right? If one of them were was sort of taunting the other and that that is the tactic she takes with him. If he says something that is um, particularly offensive to me or something, yes. I'd be like, that's his problem, that's not mine. Right, they could ignore it. Yeah, no, just don't take the insult. That, that's... That's his problem. Yeah. You know, if he has things that he says about women, or right. don't be offended by it. Ignore it. It's his problem. Don't take the bait. Oh, don't take the bait. Never. Yeah. But that's usually what you would tell children not to do. You know, it's really important to her that we as a society elevate parenting and see it as what she calls a plus. I now call the House to order on behalf of all of America's children. Go kids! Go kids! Go kids! It's not, oh, you know, that person has been out of the workforce because they chose to stay home with their children, or that person is a parent, and so they're not going to be as available 24 hours a day. You know, she really sees it as something that could be instructive to a professional. Know your own power. Don't let anybody diminish for one moment the time you spent at home. Mm. Because I think it's one of the most challenging things that people can do. Because you're not babysitting, you're raising a child. So this is not just about the care and feeding and the driving and the um, entertaining. Mm -hmm. It's about transferring values or showing children how to act lovingly toward each other. It's all a decision. You decide this is how it's going to be. And it is an accomplishment. 
That's House Speaker Nancy Pelosi talking to Post reporter Ellen McCarthy. That's it for today's show, our 50th episode of Post Reports. And we'd like to get feedback from you, our listeners, about what we're doing well and how we can improve. So we're asking you to take our survey at postreports.com survey. It should only take about five minutes. Our executive producer is Madalika Sika. Our senior producer is Matt Collette. Our producers are Alexis Diao, Rena Flores, Lena Mohammed, Maggie Penman, Jordan Marie Smith, and Ted Muldoon, who composes original music and does sound design for the show. The Post director of audio is Jess Stahl. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back on Monday with more stories from The Washington Post.